Our second scripture reading is from the book of, book of 2 Samuel. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obedidim and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. The word of the Lord. If you have a Bible and want to turn to 2 Samuel 6 or 7, that'd be great. Um, you can use uh, phone, iPad, hard copy Bible, or I will be referring to those same phrases that were read just a minute ago. And as you do that, I want you to think for a second about scenes from your week. Let's say I gave you a minute to turn to each other and said, share a significant scene of your life this week, something that was great or frustrating, something exciting or sad. What scenes might you share with somebody around you? Just take a second. You, we're not going to do that. You can do it over lunch. But just think about a, a significant scene that might instruct us as to what your week was like. Some of us might share a public scene, something that happened with a lot of people around. Some of us might share a private scene, something just maybe you and a few people. But we all have had significant scenes that guide and instruct our lives in our week. And we've been walking through the life of David in the, some of the major scenes in his life in the book of First and Second Samuel. 
we've seen actually several different character scenes, not just David, but a woman named Hannah and a man named Samuel and a king named Saul and now a king named David. And these different scenes give you a sense of what their life was like. And the reason we're looking at David is because we are asking that same question ourselves. What will our life look like if we orient it unto Yahweh, to God, the same God that David served and loved? And so we want to see it's what it's like in a, in a narrative way. What's the story? What's it look like? Because you all don't get up and say, we're going to take the creed from 1 Timothy, and then you're just going to walk through your day tomorrow and just keep saying over and over to people, I believe, I believe, I believe. What you want to do and what we want you to be able to do is be able to take those beliefs and apply them, integrate them into what it looks like to live in the scenes of your life, be those making lunches for kids tomorrow morning or being on the metro or being in traffic or being in a meeting, or crunching a spreadsheet, or composing emails. What does it look like to know God in the scenes of our lives? Because as Christians, what we believe is the richest life we can have is if all of our life is lived unto God, not just here on a Sunday morning. And in so that sense, David's life is great. It is not a model, but John Calvin, the Swiss theologian, said David's life is a mirror. It gives us a window of what we're like. And so we've seen, and we'll continue to see, like success and failure for David. Ways he loved really well. Loved friends, loved spouse, loved God. Ways he failed and loved really terribly, particularly in his family. And this morning we get to look at two significant scenes that are in these two chapters back to back of how he worships. What's it look like for David particularly to give attention and energy unto God? In 2 Samuel 6 and 7. So one scholar says these two chapters are the pinnacle of the entire book of Samuel. We've been building to 2 Samuel 6 and 7 since we started several weeks ago. And you can see why. There was this long-awaited promise, poor leadership in Judges, this cry, the last verse of Judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. What Israel says, the way to solve that is to get a king. We get a king. He's, He's not quite what we had hoped. We get another King David, but we get David's crowned or anointed in 1 Samuel 16. And it's not until 2 Samuel 5 and 6 that David's actually the king over all of Israel. So we've been, we've been waiting all this time. And in some ways we've been waiting to see, well, what's David going to do? And what he does in 2 Samuel 5 is he calls on God a lot and he suppresses a lot of the Philistine opposition And now in 2 Samuel 6, he's taken Jerusalem, decided this city kind of in the center of Israel should be the center of the government. He's taken Jerusalem from this group called the Jebusites, and he thinks, you know, what I ought to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant of God to to my political center. Because if you remember, we heard we had this Ark cycle, it's called, in the first part of 1 Samuel, where you have these odd stories about the Ark. Why are those important? Well, you see now they're going to tie back into David. The ark symbolizes God being fully alive in the middle of Israel. The ark dates all the way back to Moses. And it was supposed to be in the center of the camp of the Israelites as they wandered. And then in the center of the country to show God, Yahweh, is the center of Israel. And so David goes and gets the ark. It's been out in a small outpost of Israel for probably 10, 20 years now. And he, he brings it back in this huge public worship ceremony, this huge scene of David's life. He's leading the worship. He's not in royal robes. He's in this linen ephod, this linen shirt. And he is the lead worshiper of the country as he does this. It's a striking scene. 
Think, think fast forward, not about people, but about the election. And let's just picture that the, the inauguration of anybody you want to inaugurate on January 20th, that person is leading worship in America in a, in a linen shirt. That's what David's doing. All this energy. But we see in that scene there's some ambiguity because in the ancient Near East, part of what rulers would do is, is establish a religious center in their political center because it looked like they had God under control and God's favor. So on the one hand, there's this huge, holistic, joyous worship that's fully earnest from David, and then there's also maybe a little undercurrent that David wants to kind of get it his own way. And so David's disciplined. If you had read the whole chapter, you'd see a guy touches the ark, which you're not supposed to do because they're not carrying it the right way. And that guy dies. And in that moment, God shows David in that, you're, you have to know I'm still God. You're great. You're David. I love you. But God reminds David in this public scene of who God really is. So David, the end of six is in Jerusalem. The ark is in Jerusalem. And then we get this private scene. And you can imagine how this would happen, this gratitude. From what we know of David, you read the Psalms. This is someone living under God. He is overwhelmed. He knows he was a shepherd. And now he's the king over all Israel. And it looks like all his debts have been paid and his life is settled. And he says, well, what am I doing in the palace when the ark of Yahweh is in this tent? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a palace for God, a temple where the ark can go. And what's interesting, if you look at chapter 5, David's inquiring of God a lot. Should I fight the Philistines? Should I fight the Philistines? Should I fight the Philistines? When he decides to do the ark, he doesn't inquire at all in chapter 6. He just brings the ark, and that's when this guy dies. Because the ark is the symbol of God's holy energy, right? And But he learns. In chapter 7, he has this vision in this private moment. He brings in Nathan, the prophet. He's like, hey, I got this idea. And Nathan's so overwhelmed with the nobility of it, Nathan doesn't even inquire of God first. He says, you should go ahead and do it. It's blessed. Knock your socks off. Then Nathan goes to sleep and God goes, Nathan, by the way, I'm still God to you too. I don't think that's such a great idea. God reorients David's understanding of who he is again. God doesn't need David to build him a house. God hasn't been sitting around throughout the Old Testament with bated breath thinking, Oh, I wish Israel would build me a temple. Oh, then I could be the Alpha Omega, king of the world and universe and creator of all things, redeemer of Israel from Egypt, only if I had a temple. It's tempting, right? The, the sense of you want to love somebody, the tension, and then also want to be known for loving somebody. So like my brothers here, those times when you think, this is a great way to love my wife, ooh, and if I let people know how I do it. I get double points, right? I get a couple of strokes from my wife and my, my boys might be like, well, that was, that was pretty creative. What's it mean to love God but not need to be known for loving God? What do we want to be seen and known for? Do you want to be seen for how you go to church every Sunday or how you tithe or your Bible reading or your piousness or all these things where there's this subtle tension of you really do want to love the Lord. David is loving the Lord as earnestly and wholeheartedly as a finite man can do in these chapters. But there's still this sense at times of, well, we're all kind of broken. And David comes to God and God reminds him, look, I don't need you to build me a house. I'll make you a house. There's this interplay of the Hebrew. 
You want to build me a house, I'm going to make you a kingdom. You want to build me a house, I'm the God of the universe, I'm going to give you a covenant, and I'm going to promise to be with one of your ancestors. And the fulfillment of that promise are actually you and I sitting here this morning, drafted into God's covenant to David. Now, David couldn't do that. David couldn't get you and I here, but, but Yahweh could. There's an Old Testament scholar named John Goldingate, and he says this, God's problem with us, isn't that a great intro to a sentence? God's problem with us is that we like to tie God down, keep God under control. We don't want God on the loose, but God likes being on the loose. And David here is too fond of taking initiatives for God. He's reversing the relationship between people and God. He wants to build God a house. God conquers that declaration by announcing the intention of building David into a house. God is the one really on the throne in these two chapters. Now you can picture for David, this is more than you expected. He approached God with this great idea, and it really is a great and noble idea. But he's quieted. And so you can picture what David's like, and you hear some of his prayer that was read this morning. And he starts overwhelmed. As vulnerable as he was publicly in chapter 6 is as vulnerable as he is privately in chapter 7. So of the many scenes, just two scenes this morning into David's life, two scenes of worship, how does he love God? How can that help us in the scenes of our life? How can we take what we learn from David's scenes and apply them this week? Or this year. I just want to use three questions to guide our reflection on these two scenes. Three questions, two scenes. So the first question, again, how does David, how? How does David approach his love and celebration and worship of God? And underneath that, of course, how should I approach my love and celebration and worship of God? How do we approach God? And we see him do it vulnerably and honestly and with his whole heart in both scenes. There's no pretense before God and David here. There, there are four interesting passages. I hope you're reading along in First and Second Samuel because this is a beautiful book. And our church has had such fun unpacking things we thought we'd seen before because many of us have read these chapters before. In First and Second Samuel, there are four scenes with clothes. This is the fourth one. The, there's two scenes where people give David their royal robes, right? Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. First you get Saul trying to give David his royal armor to fight Goliath, chapter 17. It's actually 17 and 18. Saul in 17. And then you get Jonathan giving him his royal garments to be his friend, no pretense. Jonathan teaching David how to be a friend in chapter 18. So those are royal robes being anointed for David. Then in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, you see Saul trying to kill David over and over. He sends these three sets of assassins. David's with the prophet Samuel. Every time the assassins come, they fall down and worship God. One set goes, worships God. Two sets, it's like Jason Bourne, God worshiper. Jason Bourne number two, God worshiper. Jason Bourne number three, God worshiper. At that point, Saul says, forget it, I'm going to do it myself. And if you read at the end of, of chapter 19... Saul comes in all his royal stuff to get David. He's going to kill David finally. He's going to do it there before Samuel proves Samuel how wrong he was. And what happens is Saul falls down and worships God too. And it says he laid there naked before the Lord for at least two days. 
And as you read that and you read about Saul's life, you think that's probably the most peaceful part of Saul's life in the entire story. And he probably should have stayed there as a prophet, never gotten back up to be a king. Eugene Peterson says that that scene, Saul is immobilized by God's goodness. God's goodness immobilizes and presses him to the ground. But Saul is in a linen ephod. He's not naked. I said to our church that this, these two chapters would be great billboards for Rivendell. Church of the Ascension, naked worship, right? That would, I said, that would both preach and sell, both ways. But you, go, you fast forward now to David here in 2 Samuel 6, and he suddenly is drawn into God's goodness, and what it does for him is not immobilize him, it energizes him, and it energizes him to utter vulnerability and lasered focus just on God to give him his best and earnest worship and praise. How does he approach? With his full wholehearted self and no hiding, no pretending. And you could just think for a minute about how do you approach God on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night or a Thursday lunch? What layers are between you and God? These four stories, scenes of David's life with clothes are in there for a reason. Maybe the robes of self-importance about our degree or where we work or what profession we have. I'm a lawyer. I work on the hill, etc., etc., etc. All the things we put on as trappings here in D.C. Maybe robes of anger. You know, David could have come to God on chapter 6 with a, it's, I'm finally here. You were finally faithful, but you were late. Right? I mean, he's waited decades for this moment. Have you ever waited decades for God to act in a way you wanted him to act? Maybe some of you are still waiting decades. Will you approach God with that or with a robe? David's heart here, like us, is not white as snow, but he is more hungry and desirous of worshiping God than not. Do we give God our energetic best as we approach God? How? First question, how do we approach God in worship? Second question, what questions, what questions frame David's worship? Because what's striking in his private prayer in chapter 7 are two questions that he asks of God. Let someone ask you, when you're going to church, to Christ Church Vienna on Sunday morning, what are you thinking about? What's in your head as you drive? Here's the two questions that are driving David. Who am I? Who am I, O oh God, a shepherd? Who am I, the eighth son of Jesse? Not even named in chapter 16 with a name, just called the eighth son before Samuel. Who am I to be the king over Judah and Israel? Who am I to be, to be stapled into your covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all suddenly stitched together for David? This is a question that's framed this story, and it should be encouraging to you and to me. It started with Hannah. Who was Hannah? The first wife, the barren first wife of a little-known priest family. Who's Samuel? This non-priestly boy, this boy from a non-priestly lineage before Eli. Who's Saul? This good-looking king who's so brave and kingly, he's going to hide among the luggage when Israel gathers to anoint him as king. And now who's David. And, of course, the implication of that are, who are you? Who am I? 
Who am I to be stapled into God's story? Who am I to be married to who I'm married to? Father who I'm supposed to father well? Priest over a flock of people who will look to me tonight and trust me to teach them well and lead them to a new worship time and new school? Who am I? How often are you asking that question before God right now? How often is that kind of gratitude and humility the fuel of your worship with God? It's a good thermometer, I think, on how our life is. The, the more often you're asking that question and rooted in that question, the richer I bet your life with God is. The less often you're asking that question, the more you should probably take a, a look at what's going on in your own heart. Who am I? And then that question, that gratitude, leads to his second question, the second what David's asking. Who is God? We heard it read this morning. Who is God? that you would do this for me. I have a friend who asked it this way. What kind of God, what kind of God created a world where seeds can become oak trees? Tomorrow night, what kind of God created the cocoa bean that can become Hershey's and Reese's? You know you're eating out of your kids' bags. Come on. What kind of God created children? All the energy that runs out of here every Sunday morning. I love that. What kind of God created children? What kind of God brings healing? What kind of God saved you and me? Another Old Testament scholar, a woman named Mary Evans, says this. David was not to build the temple, but it is not surprising that he was overwhelmed by the brightness of the future that was laid out before him. He begins, wow, just look at what God has done for me and my family. But he continues, wow, just think about who God is and what he has done for his people. David starts with, who am I? But he finishes with, who is God? What's amazing to me about this passage is you see, God is more for Israel and for David and even for you in this passage than Israel or David or you are for yourself. David had a good plan. I'm going to build a temple to honor Yahweh. It's not a bad plan. But it's nowhere near the plan God had for David. David is nowhere near for Israel or David the way God is for Israel and David. So think again how you come and what questions you ask. You could ask who am I and who is God or you could ask some of these questions. These are some of the ones that that I wrestle with at times when I come to worship. Why aren't you doing what I want, God? How come I don't have what they have, God? When will you get it together, God? Or fundamentally, the one stapled under all those, the, the foundation of all those kinds of questions, do you love me? What, what God tells Nathan to tell David is the root and foundation of what you'll celebrate at that table, which is the ultimate answer to that question. Yes, I love you. Comma, God. None of those other questions are bad questions to take to God. They're just not the first questions or foundational questions we should take to God so often. We should return over and over to who am I? And who are you? 
So first, how does David approach? Second, what does David ask? And then lastly, where is God in our worship? Where is God? This whole temple ark scenario is really about Israel positioning and figuring out where God is supposed to be in, in Israel. They're still trying to get a handle on this problem. The other paragraph I read says, God's problem with this is we want to keep God in control. We don't want God on the loose. That feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? How many of us prayed that this week? Dear God, I give you my life. Be on the loose in my life. Now, I want that at some level. Notice my qualifier. <laughs> because part of me is like, well, I've seen what God does to people's lives, and I'm like, I, I'm not sure I want that. But what David is saying here is this space should, should define and help us understand God. There's a great article uh, Thursday in the New York Times on um, seats of power. It's, it's offices in D.C. that people are either keeping or losing depending on what happens in an election. Everything from the White House to Mitch McConnell to all these different people. It's a fascinating article. And they had great comments about, like, what was your first impression? What's the, the hardest thing that's ever happened in this office when you've been here? What's the greatest thing? How'd you decorate it? It's a great article if you haven't read it. And it's teasing out, well, where is power here? Where, where is their job located here in this space? And this is the same questions David's asking and Israel's asking. Where can I put God? Where should God be? And David wants him in, in Jerusalem. He wants him in the center. But he still wants to constrain maybe a little bit, which is why God says, no, I will build you a house. You won't build me a house. And of course, when you think about where is God in your life, it's easy to think about probably where you might constrain him. Well, God is on a Sunday morning. God is there once a week. God is there on a holiday. God is only in a church. One of our transitions our church is making is can theologically, can God move with us to worship in a school? Even a, we're, a pri, it's, we're going to a private Christian school, but we have folks who love our, we've been in a church space for almost eight years. Sacred space. We're going to have a two-hour discussion on what sacred means. But this, this chapter really fleshes that out. Is God constrained to a sacred space building? I mean, you guys worship here, so you know the answer to this. But for my church, it's been a great discussion over the last month to say, well, do we feel like God will only be located in a church structure? Can God be in a school? Can God be in a denomination other than Anglican? Can God be in a space only with certain colors or stained glass windows or whether they have communion every week or they don't have communion every week or they sing old hymns or they sing new choruses or et cetera, et cetera. All those ways we get, we get knotted up and unwilling to let God be loose. This ark and temple idea strikes into the tensions we have about God. Do we want God to be himself or would we rather control him in some way? Again, this is Mary Evans. God does not and never has been limited to a particular site. God does not and never has been limited to a particular site. The tent was provided for Israel to show them God was present but also portable. Present but also went with them everywhere they went. What happens with the temple is they believe that when they build the temple, but you see by Jesus' time what they believe is that temple is the only thing that really roots us. That's the cornerstone of Israel is to hold on to the temple. What's the first thing that happens after Jesus dies is the, the veil in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the people rips. And suddenly the temple isn't the same. And God's on the loose. 
This is what the temple was supposed to be, a place where they could meet with God, but not the only place that God could be found. A place where they could meet with God, but not the only place that God could be found. Because what we believe is God wants to be in all the scenes of your and my life. Not just here, or not just at a small group, or not just at your celebration next week, but all of it. God wants to be in the center of his people, in the center of his, their lives, in the center of David's life. The ark, the tabernacle, the temple, the word become flesh to move into the neighborhood in John 1 in a few weeks when we celebrate Advent. God wants to be in the middle of your and my life. Every scene, school, home, peace, discord, when you have enough, when you have lack, when you feel hopeful, when you don't. And what that should cause you to do is ask that question again. What kind of God wants to be in every part of your and my life with me? That's the promise of this book, the Bible, that's the promise of this chapter. That's the promise of Jesus. God is with you and died for you that you might know him and represent him. If you keep reading through some of the theology of the temple and the God's spirit and where it resides now, what you find out is where the spirit resides now, where people are to find God now, is right here with the church, not in a building, but with the men, women, and children of Christ's church. No pressure. You are David's temple, writ large and sent into the world, or at least into Vienna. And so am I. So this week, a couple ways just to consider. Again, how will you approach God this week? With robes, with pretense, or with just vulnerability before the Lord? Here's really how I'm doing. What questions might you ask as you're there first? And where do you want God to be? Is there a place this week where you already feel like, I don't want God to be in the center of that place? I'd rather he not be on the loose there. Maybe you can come as you put your hands up for communion and offer that place to the Lord. Maybe there's a place where you know you desperately need God to be in the center. A meeting, a relationship, a deadline, a paper, a test. Maybe you can offer that to the Lord as you extend your hands for communion. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the poetic beauty of these passages and for this window into both David's public and private life with you. And I thank you for his consistent passion for you in these chapters, even as a finite person. And the reminder in them that you want to all of us and that loving you is our best life, but certainly isn't safe. Grant us courage to come to you the way David did. What if there's anyone here this morning that feels like uh, they've never come to you? They couldn't imagine that God would love them this way. I pray that they would come to you this morning. They'd talk to Johnny or to me or to Corky. They wouldn't leave here wondering where God is with them. In your name, amen.